The church that is not praying together is only playing together. Somebody said that. I think it was uh, Leonard Ravenhill. Anybody know who he is? Yeah, he said that. That's really important. So, what's happening this Wednesday? Yes. Fasting, prayer, worship, and then meal is what we're going to do. And just a clarification on the meal. Thank you so much for Kevin and Carmen. Where are you for taking the meal? Thank you so much for that. We do need people to sign up. A little clarification, he, he, he has a heart to serve everyone, so he mentioned having a, a dairy-free option, a gluten-free and vegan, and we're just going to simplify things, so if you're in that category, please talk to him or me to make sure that your needs are taken care of, but if you're providing a meal, you just need to bring a meal that most everybody can eat, and uh, we'll just kind of keep doing it like we have done Wednesday nights. We still need somebody for this Wednesday, right? Okay. Yeah, but called out in a good way, you signed up. Thank you for doing that. Um, so, hey, listen, if you can get pizzas, hey, that's great, but just providing the meal. We will meet at 6.30, start sharply then. We'll have a time of praise uh, by way of song. Uh, I'm going to do some brief teaching on the purpose of prayer, and then Tina is going to structure a prayer time. We'll probably have some more singing, then we'll close our time at 7.30, and then at 7.30, we will commence eating. So usually we did the break the fast and then pray, but it makes sense to continue our time of prayer and then break fast after we have that time of prayer. So that's what we're looking at Wednesday night. We really hope we can, you can be here because the church that is not praying together is only playing together. So we like to play, but let's do some praying as well. If you would take... Your copy of God's Word, open up to Matthew chapter, oh yes, and one other thing is you open up to Matthew chapter 4, you'll notice that for Sunday school, we are providing some uh, bagels, uh, muffins, various things for people to eat. We're asking that parents, if you have children 10 and below, if you would get the food for them just to keep things a little neater over there and make sure they're not taking eight pieces at once, of which they'll finish one-eighth of it. We've all done that. If you can just make it a little easier, so parents of kids 10 and under, if, if one of the older kids or a parent, him or herself, can get that food, that would be great. All right. Hey, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but we belong to God. That was catechism number one that our children covered in uh, the children's ministry this morning. Make sure, parents, you go over that all week with your kids. All right, if you will stand to your feet. For the reading of God's Word, Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, a very, very well-known passage. I have to admit, between Sunday school and the sermon, it's kind of a one-two punch today. So if you were in Sunday school, it was great teaching. You're going to get uh, just some more of that. And if you miss Sunday school, well, you will hear what was spoken about at Sunday school from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Let me begin in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, Hmm, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, Jesus, answered, it is written, 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and sent him, set him on the pinnacle or high point of the temple. And he said to him, hmm, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these will I give you if you will just fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of God. Father, thank you for this very familiar passage, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. I pray that we would see how this fits into the overarching storyline of the Bible and also how it has immense practical application for the next temptation that comes our way. So, Lord, I pray for the power of the Spirit to give life to the Word of God in the hearts of the people of God. And for anyone here who has never turned to Christ, I pray that you would use the truth that's uh, spoken today, Lord, that through that, they would hear the voice of the Son of God into their hearts. Rise, come forth, follow me. Just as Lazarus stepped out of the tomb, would somebody step out of the tomb this morning and follow Jesus? We ask in his name. Amen. All right, if you want to grab a seat. <clears throat> Temptation. Temptation. I think it would be fair to say that everyone here experiences temptation. You might be tempted in different ways, over different things, and the person sitting next to you, but everyone here experiences temptation. And if we had an open mic, and we felt really safe around each other, and we should, brothers and sisters in Christ, most all of us could bitterly testify to a time in which we gave into temptation, right? And it brought pain and shame to our God, to those that we love, and even to ourselves. Most of us could readily admit there's been such a time in our life. And most of us know or have heard about people who in serial fashion succumbed again and again to temptation. Maybe the temptation of, of sex or the temptation of substance or, or selfishness or emotions that run unchecked. And because they gave themselves over and over to temptation, they actually destroyed themselves. Or maybe you are locked in a battle with temptation right now. Something is really tugging on you, and if you were to be honest, you would say, I have been giving in to that tug. 
Temptation is something, is it not, brothers and sisters, that we all experience? Even an unbeliever here, someone who's never really trusted Christ, you experience temptation. There's truth in this message for you, starting at the foot of the cross. So the good news of this familiar passage is there is a whole lot of hope because there is a whole lot of help given in this familiar narrative of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Now, I think that the timing of this event and episode in our Lord's life and ministry on earth is kind of insightful. Every time you step out in obedience for God, you're going to experience a counterattack. You're going to face opposition. What happened last week in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? He publicly stepped into his ministry, right? We called it the king's inauguration when he went public with his identity as he went through the waters of baptism. Now, on the heels of that breakthrough event, the public inauguration of the coronated king, on the heels of that, Satan is going to throw in the wilderness everything he can against Jesus, right? And the idea that Satan has is if he can take the bait, it will disqualify him from being our Savior. Now, before we dive into the text, I just want to give you a little bit of the canonical connections of the story. In other words, how does this story, the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, fit in the overarching storyline of the Bible? And then, what does it mean for me today? Very interesting that this last Monday, I'm I'm just trying to read through the Bible again this year, I was in Exodus chapter 4. And in Exodus chapter 4, God calls Old Testament Israel his firstborn son. And as I read throughout the remainder of the week going through the book of Exodus, how did Old Testament Israel, God's firstborn son, do in the wilderness? How did they do in their wilderness wanderings? They failed miserably, right? I mean, immediately after they are rescued from Egyptian bondage and tyranny and dominion and all that, They're grumbling. They had just witnessed 10 supernatural plagues to deliver them from their oppressors. And not but a minute after that, they're griping, they're moaning, they're grumbling because snack time was a skosh late. You remember that, right? And, And because of their unbelief, and listen, I should say because of their grumbling, and then the unbelief and that and idolatry that unchecked grumbling always leads to, right? Oh, we can't get past those giants. We can't get into the promised land. Be- listen, because of their unchecked grumbling, which always leads to unbelief and idolatry, they will flounder for some 40 years in the wilderness, a trip that could have just taken, I think, 10 or 11 days. That was what the Old Testament Israel of God did. They failed miserably in the wilderness. Now, what does Jesus, who, by the way, we're going to see today, gloriously succeed, what does he do in the wilderness? This this Jesus Christ, this true Israel of God, the true Son of God, we're going to see that he, whereas Old Testament Israel failed in the wilderness, not, not Jesus Christ, he gloriously succeeded in his wilderness temptations. And in this epic episode, we're going to see that he, he proves that he is, once again, the promised Messiah. He shows his messianic credentials. And he's also going to show us how we, too, 
can have victory over temptation wherever and however and whenever it rears its ugly head. So we're talking about temptation. We're talking, here's, here's the, 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 the title of the sermon, The Tempted King. The Tempted King. And we're going to begin with this. We're going to see, first of all, the purpose of temptation. Do you wonder what temptation is for? Why it even exists? What's, what, 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 what's the whole purpose of it? Well, let's look at that first of all. Let's read verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, if you're reading that, and you know James 1.13, what should you be saying right now? Anybody? Anybody? Joe, you asked that question during Sunday school. It was a great question. What should you be saying? Wait a second. James 1.13 says, let no person say when, they are, when they're being tempted, I am being tempted by God, because God cannot be tempted by evil, neither does he himself tempt anyone else. And yet I'm reading in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, who is it that led Jesus in the wilderness to be tempted? Who, who, who led Jesus? Is the Spirit God? Yes, we know he is the third person of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is God, so you should be saying, wait a second, in one place it says God doesn't tempt anybody, and here it says the Holy Spirit actually led Jesus out to the wilderness to be tempted. How do you reconcile that, buddy? Anybody want to know? And that was a great question, Joe. I would answer that in two ways. First of all, the word that you find translated, verse 1, Matthew 4, as tempted, can often, according to context, be translated, tested. In fact, that is what, how it's translated in some version. Anybody have a version where it says tested? Anybody here? Okay. Well, there are some. Okay. It can be translated that way. But the second thing I would say is this. However you choose to translate this particular underlying Greek word, whether tempted or tested, what is clear is when you, you bring Scripture together, the analogy of faith, comparing Scripture with Scripture, you come up with this. God ordains the testing. God is not surprised by anything, right? God doesn't wake up, put a bathrobe on, and go to his front door and, and get a copy of the newspaper and say, oh my goodness, that happened? No, God is sovereign in control. So God ordains the testing, but who is the author of the actual temptation according to this verse? The devil. Now, there's other sources of temptation. I'll get to that under point two. But, he, but here, here's how I reconcile that. It would simply be this. God ordains that we will have testing in our life, but the sources of the actual temptation for evil come from other places that he uses. Now, that is actually good news. Why is that good news? Because no temptation in your life can be wasted. It actually has purpose in it. To which you should ask, well then, what is the purpose of testing even in the form of temptation? What's the purpose of testing? What's the purpose of temptation? Okay, let me, let me answer that on two levels. What was the purpose of Jesus being tested, do you think, in the wilderness? What do you guys think? We're going to get to that with people. Anybody... Thank you for that, because that's part of the answer for us. 
What was the purpose of Jesus being tested in the wilderness? Who is Jesus? He is God incarnate, right? He is the promised messianic king. Jesus Christ, again and again in his earthly life, starting here in Matthew 4, even earlier, proves his messianic identity. In other words, the purpose of the temptation as it relates to Christ is to prove that he is the son of God, the only one who can deliver us from sins. Perfect life there, sacrificial death. And he will show that even this morning. Well, what's the purpose for us? Why does temptation come into your life? Do we just live in a random universe and just things happen? Or is there actually divine purposes in everything? And the answer is yes, there is divine purposes. So what's the purpose of you and I when we're tempted? Tonight, right now, tomorrow, you're tempted. What's the purpose of it? Well, we would go to the book of James. I already quoted James 1.13. Let me go to James 1.12 where it says, Blessed, Pastor Cleet used this text this morning in Sunday school, Blessed is the man or blessed is the woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when he, for when she has, boom, boom, stood the test, such a person will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In other words, testing in your life, even in the form of temptation, shows whether or not you're the real deal, whether or not you really belong to Jesus. Now, we're talking about your whole life, a broad section, because we're going to succumb to temptation. But what is the overall trajectory of your life? Temptation is given to show that we are the real deal, that we really have been bought by the price of the blood of the Son. So there's, there's, there's showing that we're the real deal, in fact, the word testing, temptation, sometimes refers to something uh, uh, being tested so as to exhibit its value. For instance, that people will take gold and they, will, and they will put a certain acid on it and the acid will eat away what's impure to reveal whether it's 10 carat, 14 carat, how pure the gold is. And that's exactly what testing, even in the form of temptation, can do in your life. It can show that you're the real deal. But not only show that you're the real deal, there's another purpose, and our sister just said it. It also puts spiritual muscle on you. It grows you into manhood. It grows you into spiritual womanhood. James 1 now, verse 2, count it all joy. I have a hard time with this. Count it all joy, brothers. Count it all joy, sisters, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Why can I do that? Why should I do that? He says, for you know, here it is, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, reads spiritual muscle. And let then that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what's the purpose of temptation when it hits our life? to show that we're the real deal, and then to strengthen us for the journey ahead. How many military veterans do we have here? There's Leo, and there's me. So just me and you, we'll talk right now. There's something called boot camp. I'm not even going to do any inner service jokes right now. Boot camp is a very grueling affair. How about this? How many ever played on a sports team, say football, cross country, whatever the sport, and you had a preseason? 
Remember that? Two-a-days, all the miles you had to log running. That was grueling, wasn't it? Or how many of you here have been through, say, a half week or, or a week or two weeks of final exams? That's grueling, right? Those tests, they're grueling, aren't they? There's ups and there's downs. There's victories and there's setbacks. They, as I said three times already, are grueling. And they are designed to show if you're the real deal. You need to be on the team. You are on the team. And then also to strengthen you for the season ahead. So what if you thought of your your temptations that come your way as things that were to strengthen you for the season ahead as you walk with the Lord? Now, this is not for the faint of heart. To be honest, I know you can hear preachers tell you all kinds of things, but let me just keep it real. When you receive Christ, you are not on a cakewalk, you're on a combat patrol. This is the Christian life. Can I just keep it real? It's not a cakewalk, it's a, it's a combat patrol. And I close out this first point with a great quote from the Anglican prayer book. It goes like this. This would be a great confession for us to, to, to recite every Sunday. Quote, we will not be ashamed to confess faith in Christ crucified and to fight manfully under his banner against sin, against the world, and against the devil, end quote. That is a great quote. Now we're going to get to the third point, how it is that we fight manfully against this temptation. But I think it's wise, second of all, to observe what are the tactics of temptation. One of the greatest ways to, to, to have not only be defensively wise, but offensively wise against an adversary is to know how they operate, right? What other techniques? What other tactics? Well, let's hit that second of all, the tactics of temptation. Let's start right here. In our text, who is attacking Jesus? Satan, right? In verse 3, he's actually, you can look at it, called the tempter. That's one of his job descriptions. That's one of his titles. Satan does. Now, is Satan equal with God? No. God is eternal creator. There's never been a time when he hasn't been. He's always existent, eternally self-existent. Satan, however, is a created being. And sometimes we forget that. Yes, Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but Satan does not share the attributes of God. Satan's not omniscient, doesn't know everything. He's had a lot of years to observe fallen human behavior, yes, but he's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. So the reality is, when people say, well, Satan tempted me, nah, probably not. You're not that important, okay? Me included, okay? Although he can come after us. But hold on, it's not like you're immune to the forces of darkness, because then I would go to Ephesians 6.18, which says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but what? Principalities and powers and spiritual darkness and high places and and all the rest. So yeah, he's got a hierarchy, right, that I definitely believe come after God's people. And again, if we could rip the veil between the visible and invisible, you'd be blown away blown away by the forces of darkness that are after us, image bears. But there's also another source of our temptation. One guy once paraphrased the Lord's prayer as this, Lord, lead me not into temptation because I can find it pretty good on my own. 
right? We have a flesh, right? We have a flesh. So where does temptation come from? Well, maybe the devil himself, maybe his minions, and we also have that capacity in our fallen nature, right? Our flesh. Well, wherever it comes from, I want us to see, again, under the second point, five tactics temptation employs to get you to take the bait and bring dishonor to God and hurt to those you love and yourself. Tactic number one. Temptation offers good things in bad ways. In this first temptation, what is Jesus tempted with? Turning stones into bread. He's tempted with bread. Was there ever a temperance movement against bread? People should not eat bread. It's evil. No. Bread is not evil. Maybe if you're on keto, you might see it that way. But bread is a good thing. Well, what was the problem? The, he was being tempted to use a good thing, bread, in a, in a bad way by doing it in a way God did not prescribe in a time God did not prescribe. Daniel Doriani has a very helpful quote on this point, so let me read it. He writes, almost all temptation offers something intrinsically good, whether it be food or wealth or security or authority or knowledge. And then he gives a specific example. Adultery is not a sin because sex is wicked, but because the adulterer takes another person's spouse and is unfaithful to their own. Fornication, sex outside marriage or before marriage, is not a sin because sex is evil, but because the unmarried takes a privilege of marriage in the wrong place at the wrong time with someone to whom they're not married. Almost, he says, by definition, temptation offers something good where nothing good is offered, usually no temptation exists. And he concludes his quote with this, I can't be tempted by canned peas because they hold no appeal for me. It's a good point. Temptation takes good things and wants us to use them in bad ways. And I would add, even even things that we are tempted to go for that are overtly bad, say say drugs or um, say pornography, Even the desires for those things can actually come from from not a wicked place. Maybe you're racked with anxiety. Maybe you're racked with bad memories or trauma or you've been hurt. Well, I'll just just, just get high or whatever, right? Or maybe, man, you you, you want some intimacy, and so you go for the cheap intimacy, the fake intimacy, the demonic intimacy of pornography. But even, even, even desire for bad things can have something good underneath that. So I would conclude this first tactic Temptation uses good things in bad ways by saying this, watch your wants. Watch your wants. Here's tactic number two. Temptation attacks us at our weakest. How long had Jesus gone without food when the tempter came to him? 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I know of a man in this congregation who went 30 days without food. 
I won't say who it is so that he will then lose his reward. By the way, that is not really the purpose of, of uh, fasting. We're going to talk about fasting in a couple of weeks as it relates to our Wednesday prayer fasting days. 30 days is a long time. 40 days is actually about the limit in which humans can do it and survive. But I have to admit, when I've read this text in the past, and maybe it's the same way with you, I kind of read the God card into this thing, don't you? Like, I mean, God doesn't have to eat. I don't think, I don't, I want to be respectful. I don't think the Lord's eating a Big Mac right now, okay? Like, God exists without sleep, without food. He is eternally self-existent. And I put that on Jesus Christ. But he's fully God and fully, so you better believe his human nature felt the full weight of 40 days without food. That's why our text says so matter-of-factly, let's not read through it. He was, end of verse 2, hungry. And that's precisely, is it not, where Satan tried to go in on him. In his hunger, he was attacking him, I think it's fair to say, at his weakest. You ever notice how much easier it is to succumb to the temptation of impatience? of irritation, of anger, when you're hungry and or tired. We've even coined a term to almost apologize for it. Oh, I'm just hangry. That makes it okay. No, it actually doesn't. And you ever notice how more susceptible married people can be to going the wrong direction when they're not clicking in certain areas with their spouse? See, the reality is the enemy, whether temptation comes from the devil or demonic forces, our own flesh, the tactics of temptation is to prey on you in your weakness. So my second admonition would be not only watch your wants, but watch your weaknesses. Watch your weaknesses. Here's the third tactic. Temptation majors in making excuses. Temptation majors in making excuses. Sometimes this excuse making is in the form of (laughs) scripture twisting, which is precisely what happens here. See, after Jesus' first temptation to turn the stones into bread, it's like Satan says, oh, hey, I see you're a Bible guy too, just like me. Since we're talking about the Bible, you know what I read this morning in my devotions? Psalm 91 verses, I think, uh, 14 and 15. Actually, Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. And he twists those verses to launch his second attack. Let's, Let's read it. The devil, verse 5, took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, here's what I read this morning, morning devotions, just like you had him, Jesus. He will command his angels concerning you, Psalm 91, verse 11, and Psalm 91, verse 12, on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now we're going to come back to that under the third point. But he was clearly twisting scripture, was he not, to justify the temptation he wanted Jesus quite literally to dive into. Scripture twisting has been going on for years to justify sin. For example, fallen humanity has a proclivity 
to partiality. Looking down on people because of their ethnicity, what they look like. Because of their um, vocational, what they do, what, how much they make, where they work. Or to look down on them because of the geography, where they live. So there have been people who claim the name in the past who took the, what's called the curse of Ham to justify racist practices. That's nothing more than testing, twisting scripture to give into that temptation. Or you had a group of people called the Marcionites. They were an early group of, of heretics, just to be honest, led by this guy named Marcion, who did a highly cut and paste version of the Bible, just like people do today. And who said, hey, listen, didn't Paul say flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God? Take that verse out of context. And they would say, since you're not bringing your flesh with you, then you can do whatever you want with it. In fact, it's, a, it's, it's actually a testimony of faith in God to say, I can do anything I want with my flesh, sleep with whoever I want, sleep around, because guess what? That's not the part that's being redeemed, just my soul is. Really twist it, right? And people use that to justify immorality. Or how about this? This is something that's happening today. People will take a verse on love out of context. Love believes all things. And they will use it to say stupid stuff like, love is love, right? That's the twisting of Scripture. And then temptation also makes other excuses to, get you, to entice you to sin. Here's ones that can go through our ears and go through our minds. How about this? No one will know. Huh? Or it's been a long week. I just got to get rid of some stress. Or he doesn't really talk to me. She doesn't really sleep with me. Or this is one. I'm, I'm only human. Uh, there's a day when humans are not going to sin in glory. So can't use that one. Um, it's just going to be one time. Or, 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 or here's one that's told all of them. Just one more time, right? And maybe the worst one of all, yes, the worst one of all, oh, God forgives. God forgives. Now, you ever heard that expression? And I've used it before myself. Sometimes it's easier to get forgiveness than it is permission. We've got to be careful with that, though. Because if there is something that is clearly outside the parameters of God's will, according to Holy Scripture, and we do it anyway, saying, well, God forgives, we might want to check the state of our forgiveness in our position before God, right? So I'm just saying to all of us, not only watch your wants, not only watch your weaknesses, but watch your excuses, especially trying to wrap it in religious language to justify it. Fourth of all, temptation exploits power. Temptation exploits power. In verses 3 and 6, you'll see that the, the tempter, the devil says, if you are the son of God. In other words, or it could be even translated, since you are the son of God, but basically what's going on is what Satan is saying, hey, listen, you're the son of God, right? Use your power to turn the stones into bread. You're the son of God, Use your power to jump off the temple. And by the way, the temple is going to be packed with people. Can you imagine all the oohs and ahs and praise you'll elicit from the people if you jump off the temple and the angels catch you? Now, I'm pretty sure 
that not many of you are going to be tempted to turn stones into bread. And I'm pretty sure that not many here are going to be tempted to jump off a high building without a parachute and just skydive like that. Unless, like, you're in a really, you're mentally ill, you're not going to want that. Why won't you want that? Why will you not be tempted to do that? Because what? You can't do that. You ain't God. You don't have that power. But be assured, temptation wants to use the power that we do have to entice us to sin. There are so many illustrations out there of people using their power, right, to sin and to sin against others. And I was thinking of Potiphar, Potiphar's wife. She had power, right? And she wanted to use her power, and she, that was, she was dead set on it, of sleeping with Joseph. And fortunately, Joseph cared more about his state before God before, than his state before men and promotion. But you must watch your power. I must watch the power that I have in my life in all of its areas, that I do not let it become an enticing means of temptation leading to full-blown sin. So watch, watch your power. And then the fifth tactic is, Temptation takes the shortcut. We see this in the third temptation. In the third temptation, you know that Satan says, hey, if you worship me, Jesus, then, then, then I'll give you everything. All the kings of the earth will be yours. Now, in the plan of God, that's already going to be the case, right? Doesn't it say in Philippians 2 that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in fact, really it was a bald-faced lie, which is when temptation comes. Temptation never delivers on what it promises. It does for a minute, but not really, because why would you keep having to go back for more, right? That's why in Ephesians 4, they're called lying temptations or lying lust. But here's the point. Satan was testing, tempting Jesus to bypass the cross for the crown, Right? And he wants to do that in our life in so many, even everyday ways. Instead of studying hard, why don't you just cheat? Instead of working hard, getting a job, why don't you just steal or look for any handout you can? Watch your shortcuts. So what have we covered so far? The purpose of temptation, the tactics of temptation, and third and finally, I want us to hit the habits of victory. The habits of victory. And the phrase that came to my mind was initially God-dependent perseverance. But then after going through our, our, our midweek men's fellowship where we, we talked about discipline, I thought that's a, that's a better word for it. God-dependent discipline. Now let me eke that out just a little bit. What do I mean by discipline. And it's this. The brass tax is this. It boils down to this. If you will have victory over temptation in your life, you are going to have to develop the muscle reflex, the discipline of saying no to, to stuff. You just, finally, you're going to have to learn how to have the discipline to say no. You have to. Sometimes to run away. Remember Paul says to Timothy, flee fornication? So to say no to flee and all that. Now, there are people who are out there who will say 
hey, you can attain such a level of spirituality that you'll never feel the tug of temptation because you're on this higher spiritual plane. You know what I say about them? They're pretenders, they're fakers, and they're liars. They're liars. No, man. No, 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 no. Your whole life, can I just be honest with you again? The whole, your whole life you're going to be tempted. Now, let me be careful. It's going to ebb and flow. Bigger times of temptation, lesser, and, and, and the things you're tempted about are going to change. But like I said before, the Christian life is not a cakewalk. It is a combat patrol. So again and again and again is what I'm trying to say. Is you're going to have the discipline to say no. You ever going to say yes? You're going to say yes. So what discipline do you need then? You need the discipline then to confess that, right? To repent of that and to go to the cross and receive the power of the Holy Spirit afresh to pick up and say no again. So I'm, what, what's the phrase I'm using? God-dependent discipline. But I want to get to the God-dependent part, and this is what we're going to close with. Because we're not talking about grit your lip discipline. Don't, I don't want you to think this is do-it-yourself discipline. It's not, okay? It's not DIY discipline. It's God-dependent discipline. And God-dependent discipline means you have to look in three directions. Y'all with me? Direction number one. This is what the text does. It points our eyes to who? The Son of God. And I need to remind myself that the Son of God not only bore the penalty for my sin on the cross, but when I received him by faith, he decisively broke the dominion or power of sin over my life. It's true. That's what it says in Romans. Does that mean, however, I won't feel the tug of sin? Does that mean I don't feel a pull of sin? No, 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 no. But as we just sang, he breaks the power of reigning sin and sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. But not only do I need to remind myself, this, this is called meditation. This is called spiritual meditation, not this Eastern meditation, but this is spiritual med- meditating on the truth of Christ. Not only do I need to do that, I also need to go to Christ. I need to go in that point of temptation right there on the spot. I need to go to Christ. I must come to him in prayer. This, this episode shows me that because he victoriously rejected the temptation of the devil in the wilderness, it not only, now listen to me, listen to me, it not only qualifies him to be our Savior, which he is, but it, I, I love this, uniquely, uniquely suits him to literally and actually help us in our moment of temptation. That's precisely the logic of the text that Pastor Nick read at the beginning of the service, Hebrews 2.18, for because he himself has also suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help us when we are being tempted. Because he knows. He knows. And then you go to Hebrews 4. Since then, we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who's passed through the heavens for us. Let us hold fast to our confession of faith. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, including our temptations, because he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And then this grand finale, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace to help in time of need. He ever lives to make intercession for us. If heaven could be opened up, there would be Jesus interceding for us right now, right now, right now. Which means in that point of temptation, I can come to him. I can come to him. Somebody says, oh, come on now. Come on. He was the sinless son of God. He has no idea what temptation's really like because he never sinned. I have. I know more about temptation than he does. You ever think that way? Well, I came across two illustrations. I can't remember what commentary. One was of a tug of war. In a tug of war, whether it's one-on-one or a team against a team, who feels the tug the hardest and longest? The team that, that loses or the guy or gal that loses or the, actually the victorious side? Because they have to pull all the way through. Which one feels it more? The victorious team. Jesus pulled it all the way through. He resisted temptation. He never sinned. He felt it far more intensely than we did. It's hard to imagine, but it's true. Or how about uh, somebody deadly, how about somebody squatting 500 pounds, not on a machine that makes you look a lot stronger than you are, but actually free weight. 500 pounds, that's a lot of weight. And some guy like me gets underneath there, and I get up like three inches, and then I just have to crash it down on the rack. And then some guy who's strong, I don't know, Clay Bontrager gets underneath there, right? And he squats all the way through. Who felt the resistance of that weight even more? Clay did. I collapsed, right? He had to push all the way through. Jesus, you're right. Jesus doesn't know temptation like we do. He knows it more than we do which is why he is perfectly suited for us to come to him in that point of temptation. And oh, if I had time, I'd expound upon this. He put the Holy Spirit inside of you. So when you came to faith in Christ, batteries were included. You need to get them recharged. Batteries included. So you look to the Son of God. Second of all, you look to the Word of God. Did you notice, and i got to race now because I just saw the time. Did you notice what Jesus does in all three temptations? What does he do with all three temptations? He quotes scripture. And if I had time to unpack this and I don't, I would show you how he actually goes to things that God said to Israel in its Old Testament wanderings in Deuteronomy, and he quotes them because God was giving them that word for their victory against temptation. Jesus takes that word. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.2, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When Satan tries to twist by quoting Psalm 91, he, re, he, he, he says, oh, there's other scripture that speaks of that too. Don't test the Lord your God. And then with that third temptation, he quotes again Deuteronomy chapter 8. If Jesus, let me, let me just get to, the, get to the, cut to the chase on this one. If Jesus took seriously the importance of God's word, Jesus Christ, the sinless son of God, if he took per, very seriously the word of God in defending himself against temptation and responding to temptation, do you think that maybe we should take uh, God's word seriously in that way as well? What do you think? 
Sadly, most Christians are spiritual pacifists. What's a pacifist? Pacifists, I don't want to go down this uh, train right here. Um, they believe it's, it's wrong, for instance, to, to fight back. Pacifists would not own a firearm. And scriptural pacifists own no scripture and are vulnerable to worse attacks. What is in your arsenal? What scripture do you have to defend against temptation? Jerome, the church father, said, he, Jesus, breaks the false arrows of the devil drawn from scripture upon the true shield of scripture. In fact, is it not called in Ephesians 6 the shield of faith? So the word of God is defensive, but it's also offensive. It is the sword of the Spirit where you can take on your temptations. Now, i got to wrap up this, 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 this second direction we look. I'll say this. Listen. It says in James that if you, I, I don't really know where my temptation is coming from. Do you all the time? Devil, demons, flesh, a mix? I don't know. I don't have to know. What I do know, it says in James, that if you resist, if you submit yourself to God, it's a way of resisting the devil and he will flee from you. So you submit to God. You submit to the authority of God's word. And listen, all temptations are tough, but they are temporary. Well, they're temporary. When we're glorified, no more temptations. And as much as I said, you're going to have temptations all your life. You and I know you have respites, don't you? God gives you victory, and maybe then next month another temptation comes up. They're tough, but they're temporary. You'll notice at the end of the text, what does the devil do? He skedaddles. He flees. And I will give you 1 Corinthians 10, 31. There has no temptation taken you but such as common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you're capable, but will with that temptation give you a way of escape. Hold on to that promise. Hold on to the promise of Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you look to the Son of God, you look to the word of God, and with this I close. You look, yeah, this is overlooked a lot. And if you only have the first two, you're missing it. First two are crucial, but this is also vital. You must look to the people of God. Because the fact is, the greatest lie people are buying is that you can walk with God on your own. It's a lie from the pit. Let me, take, let, me just, let, me, let me be brutally honest. That mentality is dumb. That mentality is arrogant. That mentality is deadly. And of course the devil will give you plenty of excuses. He's really good at that. Yeah, those church people, they're hypocrites. Oh yeah, those church people, they've hurt you. Oh, you can read the Bible on your own. I have my own devotions. You heard me quote scripture. I can just listen to the sermon, you know, podcasts or whatever. And what he won't tell you, and I am going to read just two passages as we close. What he won't tell you is this. This is Hebrews chapter 3. He says in verse 7, Hebrews 3, and the worst thing you're supposed to do homiletically is to have people read a long passage at the end of the sermon, but I'm going to do that. So, Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. 
40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then this, here it is. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We are to exhort who? One another. You got to look to the people of God. And then the only other passage is Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to get into verse 19 and go for about five or six verses. Therefore, brothers, Hebrews 10, 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the Son of God, let us draw near, us, us draw near, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And you know this passage, right? Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sitting deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. I know after a message like this, there needs to be a lot of digesting. <laughs> I get it. And I just take the notes, chew on it, put it in your head, and work it out in your heart. I just want you to know, I want you to know, there is a purpose behind temptation, wherever it comes from, to establish that you're the real deal and to strengthen you for your walk ahead. And if God has revealed that you're not the real deal, well, come to the throne of grace and receive Christ. There are those five purposes. Uh, there's the five tactics of temptation. I will not rehearse them. You have them before you, I hope. And then finally, there is the habits. You develop habits over time of looking to the Son of God to the word of God, and to the people of God. Father, may you have your will and your way through this word in the hearts of your people, I ask in Christ's name, amen. The music team would come. If you need, if you need to respond in any way, maybe you need, you, you say, I've just never really, I've ne never really truly surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. Amen. He says, the Lord would save you right here, in the, right here now. And we're, we're gonna have a pastor in the back couple pastors who will be able to counsel with you. And maybe you are, um, you really are a believer, but the Lord in love has kind of tapped you on the, on the chest with this. You need to make a decision. Again, go to the people of God that can help you solidify that decision. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's worship. Let's ascribe glory to the Son of God.